Now, next week, we're going to do something a little bit different. Next week, again, be in Matthew 27. But next week, when we gather together, I am going to do some teaching, but it's going to be way shorter, and here's why. We are going to pray, and we are going to worship uh, uh, pretty much the whole time. Uh, we're going to do some pretty cool stuff. And I think it's going to get really emotional. By our, our worship team has put together a, a brand new CD that will be released next week called Overwhelmed. The reason I'm telling you that is where a lot of the songs on here are, are brand new songs that were written by people who are part of this church family. We're going to be worshiping with that. But then also, we're going to be praying and praying and praying that God do an amazing work during this Easter season. We believe that God moves when his people come together and pray. We're going to pray for people to come to know Christ. We're going to pray for people to be baptized on Palm Sunday. We're going to pray that marriages are restored. We're going to pray that some of you, your children, return to Christ. And this Easter, you get to have a time like this with them like no other. We're going to pray for some of you that there's a final ending to what's been a nightmare season of your life so you're set free. We're going to most of all pray that we're the church family God wants us to be. And so we're going to gather together and pray and see God and worship God. Man, I think next week's a don't miss Sunday. And then the week after that's Palm Sunday. And the week after that's Easter. And, and we just believe that God wants us to do this. So that's what we'll be doing. Let's pray right now as we get ready to start. Father, I pray and ask that you would be with us in this moment, in this time. And as we begin, Lord, to talk about the seven sayings of the cross and we come to the one today where, Lord, you felt lonely and where you thirsted, I pray that we would understand that you did that, you took that to take our sin, our pain, so we would never be lonely and we would never thirst again. God, help us understand where that, that deep-seated hunger and thirst comes from. But let us even know more than ever, satisfaction, contentment, an overflowing, abundant life come when we truly open up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. My name is Ashley Vargas. I would wake up every morning, look in the mirror, and think, what if? What if I was smarter, funnier, prettier, thinner. What if I was good enough? I was starving myself. I was looking for anything to just fill that hunger and thirst that I had for just something more. It took me a while, but I finally found it in Jesus Christ. I found it in his love, and he quenched that thirst, and he finally filled that void. Ashley's a part of our church family here. She's a crossroads person and, and part of Generates Ministry. And man, she's a vivacious, wonderful girl. But at one point in her life, and actually uh, not just one point, she had a, a period of her life where she was literally starving herself. Uh, she had the eating disorder that you hear about. Pam and I over the years have, have dealt uh, countless numbers of time with people who have that, especially because we did student ministry. But what I want you to know is that, and most of you know this, it's almost never about just looks. It's something inside that's missing. It's this deep-seated pain and, and hurt. And, and when we can help people get to understand the love of God and the power of God, and that's filled, then all of a sudden it takes care of all the other outward things, like starving yourself to the point of nearly death. Ashley could have died. But because of Jesus Christ, she's not only alive today, she's living a life that's incredible. And I want you to know that that's what Jesus is talking about on the cross. Uh, think about this. When he was hanging on that cross, the pain was excruciating. As a matter of fact, the idea of the word excruciate comes from the idea of crucifixion. 
And being crucified with excruciating pain just to speak would have taken everything he had. And he said seven things. And they addressed the seven greatest needs that you and I could have. Why? Because he was dying to meet those needs. He was dying to give us victory. He was dying so you and I might have a place in our life where it's finished and we've won. And we go forward. And that's what he wanted for us. He died to take our sins, our pains, our hurts, and to vanquish them that day. And if we let him, he'll do it. If we let him, he'll do it. He begins by talking about forgiveness, saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Because the greatest need you and I have is to have forgiveness come so we can have a relationship with God. And so we can be set free. And when God forgave us, he wants us to forgive others. Then Jesus turned and gave an assurance to a man who was dying that my kingdom is real and I'm real. And I want you to know that everybody looking at you now thinks you've lost, but today you'll be with me in paradise. And now we don't have to fear death any longer. Then the next thing he does is he turns and looks at his mom. And uh, I don't know if you did, but I got emotional thinking about Jesus looking down at her and saying, look at me, mom. And then he said, John, you take care of her. You take care of her. And Jesus said at one point in his life, he said, who's my mother? Who's my brothers? Everyone who does the will of God. And if you didn't catch it last week or you weren't here, Jesus wants to take care of you like that. He wants to make sure you're taken care of. And then we come to this one. And, and this is where the sins of the world, but I want to get more personal. This is where my sins and your sins were put upon him. By the way, that happened in a very real and physical way to the point that our sins and the stress of that being put upon him caused him to cry out in agony. And eventually the stress of that sin literally caused his heart to tear. There was a physical reality to our sins being put upon him. And so what happens is we read about that in Matthew chapter 27, verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. So for three hours. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran, taking a sponge, and he filled it with sour wine and put a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. Now we're going to look at a lot of scripture, and I hope you're able to follow along with me. But, but I want you to think about this. There are people, even Bible scholars, who say that in this very moment, when God allowed and actually put our sins upon a sinless man, Jesus never sinned. He never lied. He never swore. He was never selfish. He never cursed. He never manipulated people or hurt people or betrayed people. When they did the things like that to him, he prayed for them. He blessed them. He trusted God. And this sinless man had sin put upon him. And when that happened, there are scholars who say God turned his face. That the reason he cried out is because God had turned away. God had stepped back. There was a disconnection. But I want you to know that's not the truth. Because the fact is God never left Jesus. So I want to talk about the fact of the moment and the feeling of the moment. But Psalm chapter 22 tells us this. Psalm 22 is prophetically speaking of the cross. And it says about Jesus and God in this section of verse 24. For God has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. 
nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried out for him for help, he heard. God never hid his face from Jesus. And when Jesus cried out, he heard every word. So why does Jesus say this? Why does he say, God, why have you forsaken me? In John 8, we're going to be in John a lot, so I hope you hold on to John. In John chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus tells us that deep down he knows God will never leave him. He, and he says this, and he, meaning God, who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Why will God not leave Jesus alone? Because he always does the things pleasing to the Lord. And there was nothing more pleasing to God than Jesus being willing to go to a cross by his own choice and die for our sins. In John 11, turn over there, look what it says. It's talking about when Lazarus is being raised from the dead. And it says, so they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew or know that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you have sent me. Did you catch it? He said, I know you always hear me. I knew you always heard me. I know it. I know that you never, ever will stop listening to me. Yet on the cross, he says, why have you forsaken me? And, and, and I want you to grab the fact is God would never turn away from him. God was there beside him. God was with him in that moment. God was listening to the cries of his only begotten son that he loved. In John 16, if you turn over, look what it says here in verse 32. Behold, an hour is coming. Now, what hour is coming? When he would be crucified. That's what he's talking about. It's the cross. An hour is coming, it says, and has already come for you to be scattered. His disciples would leave him, each one to his own home, and to leave me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Now, Jesus knew it. The fact was God would not turn away. So why did he say this? Why did he cry out with this agony? Because something happened in that moment that he had never felt before. You see, in that moment, he had the feeling of sin that you and I have learned to live with. He had the feeling of being disconnected from the very presence of God, by the way, that you and I have learned to live with. The scary thing is, is we've learned to cope. But by the way, that's not how you and I were meant to live. And we understand what it means to live in a deep, intimate connection with the Father. You never want to have that stop. And yet, very often, because of our frailty, our humanity, because too often we give in to a darker side, we feel this disconnection with God. We're used to it. Right now, right now, most of you in this room could see and if you were struck blind right now, right now, all of a sudden, boom, the whole place goes dark and you grab someone next to you and say, are the lights out? I have a feeling it would not be very long till it doesn't matter how many people are sitting around and no matter what's going on, you would start to cry out. You would start, I mean, it would scare you so badly to be instantly struck blind. That's how Jesus felt. In that moment, him knowing God's love, knowing God's care, knowing God's comfort and power, it's gone. Not that it really left, but when sin entered, there was this deep disconnection and he felt so alone. And here's the other word, lonely. He said, where are you? Where are, and, and he screams and cries in terror because of sin. By the way, there may be some of you today who you are blind and I'm not trying to be hurtful. But if you've been blind from birth, you've learned to cope. It's, it's something, it's just your way of life. And, and you might even be so good at it that no one can tell you're blind very often. I have a friend who's blind and he's so good at it, he hardly ever uses a cane. 
He wears sunglasses like you might expect, but when you're outside, lots of people do. And one day my friend was walking along Cal State Fullerton and a guy bumped into him and goes, hey, what's wrong with you? Are you blind? And he goes, yeah, I am. <laughs> I'm blind. You know what? As most of us in this room, we actually seem to get along fine. But that's not how you were meant to live. You know, Jesus wants you to say those words, once I was blind, but now I see. Once I lived a life apart from God, but now I know what it's like to live it with him. Well, Jesus always knew what it was like to be that close to God, and then he didn't feel it anymore. Not that God had left him. By the way, if you're a Christian, God's never going to leave you. But you may not sense him because you've heard him. By the way, let me say that word again. You've heard him. Did you realize that God loves you so much as a father that you actually can hurt God's feelings. You actually can grieve him. You can cause him pain because he just cares about you. And when that happens, it creates a loneliness. It really does. Isaiah 59 talks about this. It says, Behold, the, land, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities, our sins, the things we do or don't do that we should have, have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Now, by the way, Jesus, he heard. But here's what this is saying. When someone is not living their life in connection with God, it's because of sin. And when our sins were put upon him, even though Jesus never committed one, it created this disconnection. If you're here today and you're not a, a born-again Christian, a follower of Christ, someone committed to him, you don't even have a clue how, how incredible it would be if you would say, you know what, no more living like this. I want to live with him. I want to be close to him. You see, God... God has told us it is not good, Genesis 2.18, it is not good for man to be alone. He says, the last thing I want for you is to feel lonely. Yet so many people are lonely. I don't know when you felt lonely. I got to tell you, there's times I felt lonely in a crowd like this. People could be all around, but you know, you're lonely. It's like you're, you're, people could be all around, but you can't see them because you're blind. Uh, you know, uh, and maybe it happened when you were in school. And you were put in this class and you looked around and everybody else had friends and you didn't. And the last place you wanted to be was there. Maybe it was, uh, you know, when you went to a particular gathering and you looked and thought, I just can't seem to fit in. Lots of people walk around with this amazing loneliness and ache in their heart. And, and God doesn't want it for you. He says, it just isn't good. It's not good. And, and the Lord doesn't want you to have it. I talked to a woman one time. She said, you know when I feel the most alone? When I go to a family gathering and I'm looking at my children who do not love me. I don't even think they like me. And I sit there thinking, what did I do? And, and part of me wants it to be over. I just want out because it hurts so bad. And I know I'm not really welcomed or wanted. They'd never say it. But part of me doesn't want it to be over because I just wish. I wish they would know I want to be their mom. I wish they'd stop and care. Uh, the loneliest place I know I've ever been is in bed with Pam when we've had a fight. When uh, I've said mean things to her and she said mean things to me and we're mad and upset and we shouldn't have done it. And uh, sometimes I remember one time, like I'm saying these things and inside the Holy Spirit saying, stop. But I had to win. By the way, I didn't win, I lost. 
But we're laying in bed at night and, man, I felt like it was the Grand Canyon. I wanted to reach over and grab her and touch her and say, let's, let's come on. And, and we were so hurt we couldn't. That is lonely. Man, and God says, I don't want you to feel that way. I don't want that. That's death. That's not life. That's, that's despair. That's not hope. God doesn't want that for you and me. You know, I, I think it's so sad and tragic that Ed, Edgar Allan Poe was one of the loneliest men that ever lived. At the height of his notoriety and popularity, he felt like there was no one who even cared about him in reality. No one he could share life with. The despair enveloped him so much. He literally lived in almost a fog of darkness that he finally killed himself. But he talked about it in a particular poem that he wrote where he said these words. From childhood's hour, I have not been as others were. I have not seen as others saw. I could not bring my passions from a common spring. Now, what is he saying? He said, I walked and saw this person's happy and that person's happy, and they could just enjoy things. He goes, but I never felt what they felt. I couldn't feel the joy they had. I couldn't have the happiness. Now, why was he so depressed? Listen to what he goes on to say. He says, my, my, from the same source, the same source of joy, I have not taken. My sorrow, I could not awaken my heart to joy. At the same tone, for all that I have ever loved, I loved alone. I could never have the joy that everybody else has. You know why? Because I, no one could share it with me. And everything in my life that I ever loved, it made it worse. Why? Because I was alone. Now, sin does that. Sin creates disconnection. And, and God has created you and I that we would love him with all our heart, mind, and soul and know his love. God has created you and I that we might love other people and be loved by them. That's what we were created for. By the way, the reason the church was created by God is so this would be a place we'd come to and really love each other. And by the way, we're going to work extra hard this next two years of the Lord Terry's to create this, to be in more of an environment, more of a family where we love each other. God wants that and he desires that for us. But I want you to know that Jesus hanging on the cross knew the pain. He knew the the horror of being lonely. And when it happened, he screamed out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, it wasn't that there weren't other times in his life where people turned their back on him. Matter of fact, if you're in John chapter six, this to me is one of the most emotional places in all of scripture. And what happened is there were thousands. There was a huge crowd that was following him. People gathering around. He had fed the 5,000. He had walked on water. He had healed the blind. I mean, they're cheering and screaming. But don't miss this, please. And I'm going to do a parenthesis moment here. He knew their, their, their reason for being there was wrong. He knew they were not truly committed. So Jesus in John chapter 6 starts laying it out. If you want to be mine, you're going to have to understand some things. And the people didn't like it. People didn't like it. I mean, all of a sudden, they're turning and they're walking away. Now, where I'm going is this. You know, over this last year, we know. We know that there are lots of people that have left the Crossroads uh, attendance that aren't with us anymore. Some have left because they moved some have left because the honest truth is there's a church that's more effective and being a part of who they are. And by the way, that's not a bad thing. That's a good one. But let me tell you this. I do know people have left us because they didn't want to get committed. And uh, I, I want to say that this, you ready? 
We love them and we care about them, but good. You don't want to get committed, you shouldn't be here. You don't want to be on fire for Christ, this is the last place you ought to be. Someone said to me, well, I thought this was a church anyone could come to. I said, yeah, you can come, but you can only stay if you want to be committed. (laughs) And we're not going to veer from that. Jesus didn't that day. Jesus didn't stand there going, oh, I'm going to lose crowds. I better be careful. No, he was careful the other way. I want to make it clear the commitment it takes. Please don't miss this. God hates lukewarmness. And if you're not going to be on fire for Christ, you're never going to have the relationship with him he wants. And we, if you're here today and you're not on fire, I want to say this. We are praying you feel a holy discomfort about it. I don't want you to walk out of here feeling okay. You need to walk out of here longing and hungering for a God who loves you and a life he has for you. And we want it for you. And and, and I'll tell you, it's the best life you could ever have. It's the best life you could ever have. But Jesus does that in John 6. So guess what? Thousands are there. By the time he's done, there's 12. And then in John 6, this emotional moment comes where it says in verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the 12, there's only 12 left. You do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered and said, Lord, whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And then Jesus answered and said, Did I myself not choose you with the twelve, and yet one of you is the devil? Now he meant this concerning Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was one of the twelve who would betray him. I don't know if you catch the emotion of what's going on. He looks around as everyone else walks away, and he looks at these twelve, and he said, Do you want to leave? Peter said, No. Where would we go? And then he thought, oh, I love you guys. I chose you, but there's one of you still. It's breaking his heart who would reject him. By the way, Peter would reject him. Peter would reject him, but at least he would come back. But there was a painful moment in Peter's life where he turns on Jesus. Remember earlier, Jesus had said, you're going to scatter. You're going to leave me. And Peter said, even if everybody else does, I won't. I would die for you. And Peter said, I'll do it. And Jesus looked at him and said, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Now, what a lot of people know is that, but what they didn't know is this. What it talks about here in Luke chapter 22, it it says that Jesus had been arrested and he had been taken uh, to be interrogated and beaten and all that. And this whole time this is happening... Simon is standing outside and a young girl comes to him and says, but aren't you one of the followers? And he said, no, I'm not. And another man says, surely you're one of them who followed him. And he said, no, I am not. And another one said, but you must be, you're a Galilean. And then what it says in Luke 22 is that he says, no, but another place says he begins to curse. But, but I want you to catch what it does say in verse 60. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are speaking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Don't miss the next verse. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. Did you know that when he denied him the third time that he actually ended up locking eyes with Jesus? Now, why? Because at that moment, they're taking Jesus. Now, he's beaten. He's bloodied. He's about to get worse. And they're walking him to the next place he would go to. And immediately, Peter denounces him. And they turn and their eyes meet. Jesus looked him in the eye. How do you think Jesus felt? I mean, he knows, he knows Peter's going to come back, but how did it feel to know that the person who just said, I would never do this to you, did it? 
And they look at each other. Jesus knew what that was like. But that pain, that hurt, was nothing compared to the fact when my sin was put upon him and your sin was put upon him. And, and he said, my God, my God, where are you? Sin does that. But let me say this. He then, by taking it from us, never wants it to be between us and God again. Now, if you're brand new to all this, let me be as clear as I can. You know what? If you're here today and go, but I, I believe in God. You know what? I'm glad you believe in God. But you know, the devil believes in God. You know, the fact you believe in him only just makes you smart. And if you're struggling with believing in God, I'm not trying to be demeaning. I want to challenge you to think about it. But God, even though he wants you to believe in him, that's not it. He wants you to know his love. He wants you to be in connection. He wants you to be close. That's the great desire of God. And the last thing he wants you to ever say or feel is you're not with me. God wants to be with you constantly. And so Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then that leads to the next saying of the cross. And he cries out, I thirst, I thirst. And look what it says in John 19. It says this in verse 28. After this, knowing, now catch this, that all scripture had already been accomplished, that, that he now had our sins upon him, that he had done what he was supposed to do in this moment. To fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty, I thirst. Now he physically thirsted. He physically needed it. The, the physical pain of the crucifixion was real and Jesus wasn't shielded from it. By the way, he was not shielded from temptation, hurt, pain or hunger or any of that his whole life. But he never really hungered and thirsted for anything, even when he fasted because he knew the Lord so well. It can't be missed that he says this after, after he felt God's presence leave. Now, God didn't leave, but after the feeling that sin created, now he feels something else, thirst. Now, it's clear it is a physical thirst, but I want you to know that Jesus died on that cross that day so you and I would never have the kind of thirst that Ashley talked about. Where deep down inside, it wasn't there. The love wasn't there. The fullness wasn't there. The joy wasn't there. She couldn't be happy. She couldn't enjoy. And God says, I don't want that for you. So Jesus is going to die a physical death, but he's also taking upon himself our humanity in that moment and knowing the pain of it. In Luke 22, he said those words, Father, Father, if possible, remove this cup from me because the last thing he wanted to do was to feel what he was about to feel. Again, you and I do that all the time. But please don't miss this. This is so important. Sin creates in us a hunger that's never filled. Sin creates a sin and a hunger that's never filled. People who are addicted to pornography, they don't look at it one time and go, okay, now it's over. No, they'll want more. You guys who struggle with alcoholism, you know that, don't you? You know that, that if you're an alcoholic, you go, okay, well, I'll take a drink. Well, does that end the problem or does it create a worse problem? People who are given to anger, when you unleash it, let it take over, does it, you go, now I'm done? No, you'll get worse. When materialism, do you think that, to, do you think when any of you went out and bought something, okay, that's the last time I'll ever buy anything else or want anything else? No. Sin does that. But righteousness does the opposite. Living with God does the opposite. It's not that we can't go buy things or own things, but they'll never own us. 
And, and in this moment, Jesus, Jesus is feeling what we feel too often, but he wants it taken away. He wants the cross to bring an end to it. In John chapter 6, if they're there, look at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Will never thirst. I, did you catch that? That's God's great desire for you. He wants that to be what it just literally defines our life. Now, that means, you know what? Some of you today might go, but Chuck, all right, I'm kind of catch where you're going, but look at, I'm in the worst shape I've ever been economically. I mean, I don't know where we're going to live. I don't know how we're going to make it. I, I don't have a job. I don't know what I'm going to do. And, and so, you know what? What you're saying doesn't work. Well, there's this guy named Paul. Any of you Christians here are this guy named Paul? Like he was used by God to write most of the Bible. Um, Paul, sitting in prison with nothing, said this in, in Philippians. I've learned the secret of being content when I have nothing. And I've learned the secret of being content when I'm rich. And then he said some words almost all of you know, Philippians 4 verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, if you haven't caught it, the truths of Jesus, they work. They work whether it's in the prison or in the palace. Whether you're in, in supposed slavery, you're set free, uh, or whether you're living this life where you've got flourishing and got everything. See, Jesus is calling you and I to have something that he could give to you. Only he can give to you and to me. And that is a freedom from loneliness and a filling of love and a, and a contentment that means that it doesn't matter what's going on in your life in this moment. You could be content. And we see that when we're in India in the most impoverished areas ever as God works in believers there. And we see it in a place like this that we call poor, poor. And it's not really poor when you look at what the rest of the world goes through. And uh, Jesus doesn't want you to ever have to do it. In other words, you ready? When you come to know him and know his ways and his love, he says, you're not gonna walk around wanting more. Now, will you get it? Sometimes you will. But you won't have to want it. John chapter four, a couple chapters before he's with the woman at the well. And Jesus answered and said to her in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall never thirst, but the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. I love that passage. Uh, I got to tell you, every time I read it though, I think about Gray Glory. I love Gray Glory. Anybody else here love Gray Glory? Harvest, I mean, he's, man, you got to love Gray Glory. Greg shared that when he was first saved, he just wanted to share Christ and he had read John chapter four. So he thought, I'm going to do it. And he drove down to Newport Beach, found a drinking fountain, and just stood there and waited. When people went to get a drink, he'd say, when you drink of that water, you'll thirst again. <laughs> and he said, you know what happened? People just thought I was weird. You know, yeah, you didn't get to witness a lot. But Jesus in that moment tells her, do you realize that you're going after something that you'll never truly satisfy? But if you come to me, you're not only going to get water, you're going to get a geyser that gushes up, that springs out to eternal life. In other words, you're ready? When you say, oh, I wish I could get this and that so I'd feel better. God says, don't do that. Come to me. Now to catch this, don't come to me to feel better. Come to me to get blessed. Come to me so that I pour blessings in you and it's like bouncing out like a geyser. And you're going, God, I can't believe this. Now, by the way, again, I'm telling you, it works. It works when I'm standing in a hospital ready to cry my eyes out and the power of the Holy Spirit comes on you and you're like, okay, somehow, some way, this is gonna work. God, and, and, and it's like a geyser that gushes forth. And when you're in those times of joy, it goes more and more and more. And if you're brand new to all this, believe it or not, we call this the power of the Holy Spirit that is poured into your life and comes out like rivers of living water. God doesn't say get a drink. He says, get a geyser. 
He doesn't say, take a sip. He says, come to the river. You see, that's the thing we've got to grab hold of. Now, that's what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 7. And it's in the midst of a Jewish feast. And part of the feast was they'd go to this particular area and they would open up this thing where water would come gushing out and the priest would begin to pronounce, may blessings like that come upon the land of Israel like God did in the Exodus when the water came out of the rock. And in that very moment where they did it, Jesus does this in John 7 verse 37. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty... By the way, today, if you're thirsty, listen to this. If you wish for more, listen to this. If your life isn't what you think it is, listen. And please don't miss this. If you're a Christian and you thought, well, I'm glad I'm a Christian, but I thought it would be better. Listen to this because something's wrong then. He ought to be doing greater than you could ask, hope, or think. He ought to be blowing your mind. If it's not happening, it's not that God doesn't love you, but something's missing. If you're thirsty... He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from an innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now he's been glorified and now it's given. And he wants you and I to have it. And he wants you and I to be, have this inner being satisfied to a level you can't believe. That's why in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. And by the way, the word is, blessed are those who keep hungering and keep thirsting after righteousness. And then it says, for they will keep being satisfied. Now, now the point is that when you and I say, God, I want more of you, he goes, you're going to get more of God. And you might say, well, wait a minute. I thought he said not to hunger. But it's like you turn and say, oh, I want more. And God goes, then I'm giving you more even and more than you asked for. And then you get more and more. And it just keeps feeding you. And you don't find yourself hungering and thirsting for love, for significance that you matter, for relationships that work, for, for an end to the loan. It's all there. Uh, we talk about this verse all the time. It comes out of Revelation chapter 2. Jesus is talking to some Christians. It's interesting. He's talking to Christians. And he says this. He says, I want you to know something. I stand at the door and I knock. And if you would open up to me, I would come into you and I would dine with you and you with me. The word dine is the, the Greek word for the evening meal where you would sit, not, not how we do in our day and time. It's like where you'd sit around and talk and share the most intimate moment of your life. The Lord, did you catch that? He said, if you right now are hungry and guess what I'm doing? I'm knocking on the door saying, let's, let's get together. Let's make this real. Let me come into your heart and life. By the way, today, if you're hungering or thirsting, if you're sitting here thinking, man, I just don't like my life, But I'm telling you, I'm not telling you it's going to be easy. I'm telling you it's going to be great. Come to the Lord and live the greatest life you could ever live. Come and experience him in reality. Please don't. Please don't walk out of here not knowing him, really knowing him intimately. And today, if you want that, then Jesus said, I'm knocking. Now, how do you get it? You need to say, come in. And in a moment, we're going to pray. And in the middle of the prayer time, I'm going to invite anybody who wants to. I'm going to invite you right where you're sitting, right in the seat you're in, to whisper a prayer. I'll lead out in it. We'll pray it together. And what you'll be saying is, I want your love. I want your forgiveness. I want you. And we'll just do it together. Today, if God calls you, I pray you'll pray that prayer with me. It's the first step in coming to him. Today, if you need to come back, come back. Don't, don't wait. 
I'm going to say this, and I've just got this feeling. There's somebody here today, you're thinking, you know what, I might do this one day. Why wait? Because I want to tell you what, he loves you. He cares about you. He really does. And, and he wants you to say yes now. I know he does. There isn't anybody in here that God wants to put it off. He wants you to come to him now and to live now. If you're here today and there's, there's guilt, you're feeling guilty, Believe it or not, God is saying to you, there's nothing you can do about that in this moment that'll matter more than, more than letting me come and take the guilt and then show you how to handle it better. To live better. I just want to take it off you. Father, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would really move in this place. God, I want us all, I want all of us who know you to have this like, this gushing experience of, Lord, this, this rivers of living water coming out of us and we're living life that's invigorating and joyous and clean and, and, and passionate and alive. And God, I pray that's what happens here. Now, I know there are times some of us get hurt or some of us get down, but I pray we're the kind of church where we get around each other and we lift each other up. I pray just by coming and getting in your word and hearing your promises and worshiping you, it starts to change everything. And what happens is as we believe, it begins to change in our hearts and life because of who you are. Father, I pray right now, I ask that your spirit really start touching people. God, I pray for the young girl who's here today and she, she did something she never thought she would do. And now inside, she knows why she wish she never would have. But I pray today, Lord, that your love's coming upon her and she's starting to feel like she used to feel. She gets it back. She didn't think she could have it back, but it's coming back. Your love, the purity, it's just there for her. And I pray today she would open up and whisper this prayer. Father, I pray for the person today who's, they feel like their friendships don't work. And God, I don't know that it's an easy answer, but that's why we need you to give it. And I pray you're going to touch that person and today they're going to be able to come to you. Father, for a man who's sitting here today and he knows the pain of being in his home and not feeling loved. He's actually sat there at one point and just got quiet and no one noticed. And today, Lord, he needs to know he matters more than that. He really does. And I pray your spirit would touch him. And God, I pray right now you're beginning to stir in hearts and minds, not only here, but online. God, I sense there's someone online right now that needs to say yes to you. They weren't even planning on watching today, but now that they are, it's for them. And the reason they're not here today is because they don't want to be in the crowd. But I pray, God, that now not only are they going to give their life to you, they're going to want to be here so they can be in the family. So God, we pray you're going to touch anyone who needs to say yes to you today. I want to ask that we keep praying. And right now, we're going to go to a time where I'll lead that prayer that if you want to say yes to God, you can. But before I lead that prayer, I'm going to stop for just a second and let you think. And if God starts touching you, if you start sensing it or you want it, I'm going to give you a chance to get ready to say this prayer with me. Let's just give him a second to touch you. This is your moment. Let's just whisper this prayer together. Say these words. Say, Lord Jesus, I know you love me. And I know you died on the cross because I have sin. 
and I need forgiveness. Because I've got hurt and pain and I need healing. Because I have fear and worry and I need freedom. And you died so that I could be alive, so I could be new, so I could be yours. And I want this and I want you and I open my heart to you. Please fill me with your love and fill me with your spirit. Please help me be. Help me be who you want me to be. And help me live the life I should be living. And I say yes to you. I'm yours. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And praise God if you prayed that prayer today. Praise the Lord.